was we talked about the you know putting God to the to the test in terms of the taste and see. He says there were so many things that were that are laid out both in the Old Testament and the New Testament about who Jesus is and what he wants us to do as we participate and remember as we become more and more a functioning part of his body that he asks that we do these things in memory of him when we come together thought it would be uh, useful um, since I got uh, pressed into duty to, to come to you guys twice. I guess Andy really was desperate. So he said, you know, he turned me loose again. Um, but there was, when I saw that the topic for this week was the, to uh, meditate on the life, burial, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I was uh, reminded, I mentioned last week about a teaching series by John Paul Jackson um, called The Communion Effect. And there was a timeline in that that I really felt like was was too good not to, to share with us. So this is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do because uh, we're going to work through uh, this timeline so that really what I would ask is that just stay, focus in and think about what happened the last five days that Jesus was physically in our presence. Holy Father, we just ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds, quiet our spirits, help us to be fully present as you release in us what you've got for us here this morning. In your name, Lord Jesus, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Consider with me now, it's Wednesday night. Jesus has gone to bed, and this is probably going to be his last sleep he ever gets. He's probably thinking, tomorrow, everything on the face of the earth is going to change. Father, help me do this. Everything I was birthed to do, everything we discussed before the world began, is going to happen tomorrow. I'm going to go through so much, but it's going to release so much. Give me strength for tomorrow. It's now Thursday morning, and he wakes up probably early, probably a little anxious, and he begins to prepare his disciples and tell them what they need to do. He begins to prepare himself. He tells John and Peter to go do something together alone. For the first time, he never left them alone uh, because they clashed. He tells them to go and find this upper room where they would have supper that night together, the Pesach supper, the eating of the lamb, the last supper as we know it. Passover would be celebrated. He tells them the room was already, had already been prepared. The owner of the place where it was to be held has already been notified by God in some ways, they perform, that Jesus is coming. Thursday afternoon. They find this particular place, and they begin to prepare uh, the food that's going to be eaten that night. It takes a while to do because the room has to be cleaned out, washed down. There can be no leaven in the room. It takes hours. By Thursday night, after sundown, Jesus calls his disciples together, and he gets them into this room and continues the sanitation process by washing their feet. He humbles himself and literally gets down on his knees and washes their feet. 
Peter doesn't want to let him wash his. And shortly, Jesus will be telling Peter to get behind me, Satan, because Peter does not want Christ, Jesus, to be crucified. Peter says, no, let me wash yours. But Jesus insists that unless Peter lets him wash his feet, he would have no part in Jesus' kingdom. So Jesus washes the feet of all the disciples. And then they do what he foretold. They eat his flesh, the bread of life. And they drink of his blood, the wine, the new covenant that was poured out for all that were to come. You can imagine that he wants to tell them, guys, once this is accomplished, your healing will take place. All your deliverance is going to take place. Everything you ever wanted in the establishment of God's kingdom is going to happen soon. Very soon, the reality of what this all really means is going to hit you. Everything that you've dreamed of is going to be available to you, including communion with God himself. Even as I commune with him, you will be able to commune with him in just a few hours from now. About two hours later, after after Judas has left to betray him, Jesus prays this consecration for his his disciples. Uh, If you want to go back and read it yourself later, this is in John chapter 17, verses 6 to 22. I have revealed you to all all the ones you gave me for this world. You... They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it, and they know that it came from you, and they believe that you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those that you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have been given, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world, and they are staying in this world, but I am coming to you, Holy Father, so you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name, so that they will be united, just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the Scripture foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. But I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into this world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they may be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be one, just as we, you and I, are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. 
and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Not only was this a prayer for all his disciples, but for you and me because he included everyone who would follow their words. So a little over 2,000 years ago, Jesus prays for you and me. If ever a prayer would be answered, this would be it. Then they leave for Gethsemane. They have eaten the bread and they've drunk the wine. They head through the Kidron Valley, facing the gates east of Jerusalem. The gate would shortly be closed, never to be opened again until his return. It would not be long before the gate was totally destroyed, um, about 69 years. About an hour later, we're now three hours in. During the agony of the hours in Gethsemane, he sweats great drops of blood. And three times he urges his disciples to pray with him not to fall asleep. Midnight Friday morning, sound of people approaching, a Roman garrison about 600 men. They sent 600 men to take Jesus. They come to take him, asking if Jesus is there. And Jesus identifies himself, and he says, I am he. As soon as he says these three words, I am he, three simple words, 600 men fall backwards to the ground from the power of God. Roman soldiers They are probably thinking to themselves, 600 wasn't enough. We should have brought a legion. If his words can knock us down, what are we doing here? You can almost feel the confusion. You can almost feel the fear rise up, uh, starting to say, who is this guy that just knocked us down? Maybe he really could be the son of God. If we take the the son of God away, we could die. If we don't take him away, we could die. We either get killed by him or we get killed by Pilate. What a choice. You can almost feel them say, and the word probably spread through their ranks about the Roman centurion whose servant Jesus has healed when when he said, you don't even need to come here. You just say the word. You can believe that the word of the servant being healed spread to the ranks of the soldiers of Jerusalem. Now here they are saying to each other, it was true. He did it. Just before they take Jesus away um, to Annas and to his son-in-law Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus replaces the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, back to the side of his face, the side of his head where Peter had cut it off with the sword. Within moments of this, Pilate's wife has a dream. In fact, she has several dreams, and she can't get away from these dreams. Those dreams so frighten her that she goes and begs her husband to have nothing to do with this man. It's now about 1 a.m., Friday morning. Jesus is being led to the palace of the high priest, and as he's being led, Peter denies Christ for the first time. Caiaphas is already there, and he's gathered the tribunal, 72 members. You know, I think it's interesting, a note I wrote to myself is, I wonder if the reason that Jesus sent the 72 is that he knew that there were going to be 72 there to judge him that day. Do with that what you like. It's just thought. Men who will now judge Jesus. An hour later, Peter denies Jesus for the second time. 
Meanwhile, the members of the tribunal are physically beating Jesus. During all of this, Jesus says nothing. Not even a sound. Not so much as a grunt or a groan did he make. They moved Jesus to a more open area near the window of Caiaphas' house so that everyone would see him in hopes that he would admit that he'd said he was the Son of God so that everyone would hear it. They hope he will confess publicly of this blasphemy that he's been claiming. How dare him claim to be the Messiah? Because he will not speak, something has to be done. So they bring in men who will bear false testimony. They lie. They distort. They manipulate what they heard and say things that Jesus himself never said. As they are giving their false testimony, Peter, in full view of Jesus, denies him the third time. And at this poignant moment, the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of Peter meet, and the rooster crows. Peter runs away, weeping bitterly, totally ashamed. Jesus saw what he did. That moment, the blood on Jesus' face, when they, their eyes locked, had to haunt Peter. The tribunal now concludes that Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, the Messiah, actually did occur, and they plot to turn him over to the Romans for crucifixion. It's now about 5 a.m. Friday morning. This took all of about four hours. In the pale gray light of the morning, Caiaphas once again gathers the Sanhedrin and the tribunal together, and there are more this time that come to this particular meeting. Some of those most influential of the community are present. They agree to send Jesus to Pilate so that the blood of Jesus will not be on their hands. Isn't that ironic? They think they have it all figured out. Even if he was, by some strange chance, the Son of God, they would not be held responsible for God, by God, for committing him to death. Pilate, remembering his wife's dreams, tries to send Jesus back to the tribunal. They claim not to have the power to sentence him, this man, to death. They can't impose capital punishment. So they tell Pilate they can't do this and that the, his crimes are worthy of death. And, you know, after all, he claims to be king. And if Caesar finds out that you turned him back, man, it's going to be your neck. We know from Scripture that Pilate had longed to meet Jesus. Who wouldn't want to meet Jesus? He'd raise the dead. He'd cast out demons. He'd multiplied loaves of bread and fish. He walked on water. He didn't even have to go anywhere for anything to happen. He could just say the word and things happened. He had heard so many incredible things about this miracle worker. Why did they have to meet like this? It's now 6 a.m. Friday morning. Pilate tries to barter Barabbas, whose name means son of God, for the miracle worker. The, their response shocks Pilate. After his final interview with Jesus, Pilate actually literally washes his hands of the matter, hoping he could somehow wipe the blood from his hands. The people chose the fleshly Son of God 
over the actual spiritual son of God. About the same time that the people are choosing Barabbas, Judas runs to a field realizing what he's done. And he stands on a rock, puts a rope over a tree limb, and he jumps from that rock, hanging himself. The tree limb must have broken because we're told that when he hung himself, he fell against the rock, the rocks and his bowels literally burst open. The strange thing about this is that it's the the potter's field he ran to was the very field that Jeremiah the prophet had purchased. It was the same field where Jeremiah had stood and prophesied against the Pharisees, the scribes, and Israel, the very people who had bribed Judas to betray Jesus. At about this same time, Jesus is taken by the Roman soldiers, and he's stripped of his clothes. And they begin beating. They begin the beating process, which leaves his face so badly deformed that he's no longer recognizable as a man. He's given a purple robe and a crown of thorns in mockery. It's placed on his head, and he's hastily taken to the praetorium, where he is beaten further. And eventually is presented to the people one more time. Once more they cry out and they demand for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate can't believe it. It's now 7 a.m. Friday morning. The Roman soldiers seize Jesus and they lead him away to be scourged. Stripped of his robe, he is now beaten with a nine-tail whip. Each tail having pieces of metal and broken bone that hook to the end that are designed to strip, cut, and tear the flesh away. His beard is plucked out. By this time, he has lost more than a quart of blood, and he's had no water or anything to drink of any kind, and he's weak. 8 a.m., Friday morning, Jesus begins his journey outside the camp to be crucified. He's dragging the cross that he will eventually be nailed to and weakened from the loss of blood as, he continue, as his heart continues to pump strongly and the blood continues to flow out of the wounds. Jesus falls to the ground and a man named Simon the Serenian is ordered to pick up the cross and carry it the rest of the way. 9 a.m. Friday morning, they reach Golgotha. Jesus' hands are nailed to the cross piece of the cross. The cross is then hoisted by ropes and set in place on top of the pole that's there. Bent knee, his feet are then nailed into place. All who are crucified hang like this until they die. Breath is nearly impossible without hoisting oneself up by either their hands or on your feet, which further tears the flesh and continues the loss of blood. As he's hanging there, he realizes that he is between two thieves, one who is mocking him and one who is penitent, and asks him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And as he hangs there, he says seven different sayings, each one sandwiched between the first father, the second father, and the last father. The first saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
The second saying, today you will be with me in paradise to the penitent thief. The third saying, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The fourth saying, I thirst. The fifth saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sixth saying, it is finished. The seventh saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with these words, he died. It's now Friday about noon, and for the last three hours, it has been pitch black. Nothing can be seen. It's not that it's cloudy. It's, um, the entire reference here is that the sun itself was darkened, not from the clouds that covered the sky, but from something that happened to the sun itself. Jesus dies without a bone in his body being broken, just as it had been prophesied by Isaiah. In spite of not a bone being broken, his heart must have been broken. They pierced his side, and water and blood flowed mingled together, the sign of a broken heart. Jesus is dead. His body, his soul, his spirit are now in absolute darkness. At this particular moment, Satan still has the keys to death, hell, and the grave. The God in whom there is no darkness is suddenly found in the very midst of darkness. Not only is Jesus in darkness, but the whole world is in darkness. If something doesn't change, this darkness will get worse. When Jesus utters his last words and dies, instantly, two six-inch thick veils, one over the other. There were two because that when they were given the law and, they, and it was told that where the dimensions of the Holy of Holies were, that these veils were to be placed there. But because they weren't sure whether they were supposed to be placed inside that Holy of Holies or outside the Holy of Holies, just to make sure that they were right, they made two. And so here, what would have been a six-inch thick veil was 12 inches thick. And at the instant that he died, through the power of God, from the very top of that veil to the bottom, it ripped in two, and the Holy of Holies was exposed for the very first time to everyone. Simultaneously, there was a huge earthquake, and major rocks and boulders that covered the hills were broken into pieces. Josephus in his history in the Talmud both tell us that not only did this happen, but for some unexplained reason, at the same moment, a middle candle in the temple menorah went out. In addition to the massive temple gates that were locked at all times, because Jewish tradition said that if the gates were opened, it would mean the destruction of Jerusalem, that the gates swung open as they were destroyed. It's now 2 p.m. Friday afternoon. Joseph of Arimathea had gone to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus, and it was granted, and he went and took Jesus down from the cross. Other people went too. Near the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, 
And in that garden was a brand new tomb that they laid Jesus in. They had to do it in a hurry because at sundown they had to be in their homes because it was a Sabbath. So Joseph of Arimathea and another leader of Israel, Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus and asked him, must I enter into my mother's womb again, helped Joseph. They brought with them a mixture of aloes and about 100 pounds of myrrh. This is very expensive stuff. In current current dollars, that's about $50,000 worth of myrrh they brought. And they bound it in the strips of linen, and they put the spices in, um, as was the custom for Jewish burial. Along with them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome came and followed with other spices and fragrant oils that they might anoint Jesus' body according to their customs. They observed the tomb and how Jesus was laid to make sure that it was done right and then returned to their homes to prepare more spices and fragrances so that after the Sabbath, they could come and finish their job. Nightfall Friday. All of Israel observes the Passover that night, not knowing that the lamb had been slain. Saturday morning, everyone observes the Sabbath and all the traditions of the Sabbath. While the disciples and the rest of the people are doing this, the chief priests are meeting with Pilate. Instead of observing the Sabbath and the Passover, just as they'd accused Jesus of not observing the Sabbath so many times before, they are meeting with Pilate. And saying, sir, we remember this man, and while he was alive, he said that after three days I will rise. Isn't it interesting that they remembered and the disciples did not? They tell Pilate that they do not want Jesus' disciples to come and take him away and claim that he'd risen from the dead like he claimed he would. How much are they guilty for recognizing, uh, to, for recognizing that Jesus said this and yet trying to prevent it? Therefore, Pilate demanded that the tomb be made secure until the third day came to an end. Pilate told them, you have your guard. Make it as secure as you know how. Sunday morning, the third day. We've gone from Wednesday's preparation, his last sleep, to Thursday, to early Friday morning when he was taken and beaten and crucified. And on your own, I'd ask that you read Matthew 28. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, and others, they've gone to the tomb, they've gone to the tomb and they've come rushing back because as they were there, there's another earthquake and the stone that had been covering Jesus' tomb has been moved. And Jesus has risen from the dead. How can this be? It's never happened before. Nobody has ever risen from the dead before. With this, John and Peter run to the tomb, and the the two who had prepared the final meal are going to find the lamb together. John looks in the tomb, and he sees the linen cloths lying there, but he does not go in. Peter then catches up. And he does go in, and he sees the same thing. He sees the handkerchief that Jesus' head had been wrapped in, not lying with the rest of the linens, but folded in a place by itself. They return to the house, marveling at what's happened. They both saw and believed, yet none of them remembered the Scripture that Jesus said he must rise from the dead. 
yet. Mary saw the angels. Peter and John did not. The rest left, but Mary lingered. She was weeping when Jesus spoke to her. She didn't realize it was Jesus at first. He tells her not to cling to him when she does finally um, and says that he has not yet ascended to his father and your father. He tells her to go back and tell the rest that he's ascending to their father. Suddenly, at that moment, we've all been adopted as sons of God. She's running back and pondering in her heart, what does this mean, my father? How could this be? At the same time, Jesus meets other women and instructs them also to go back and to tell the others to meet him in Galilee. And there they would all see him again. Still Sunday, two men are traveling on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize Jesus as he came up to them. And he begins to talk with them. And he opens up the scriptures with them, explaining everything from, Jesus, from Genesis to that day and everything that must happen in fulfillment of the scriptures. And then their eyes are opened. Sunday afternoon, while all this is going on, the guards come, in, come back into the city and they explain to the Jewish leaders what they had seen happen. The stone had been rolled away and Jesus was gone. The priests and the elders assembled and consulted together and they decided to give them a large sum of money to change their story and tell everyone that the disciples had come in the night and stolen Jesus' body while they were asleep just as they had warned Pilate that they wanted to make sure it didn't happen. Truth be told, if Roman soldiers had actually gone to sleep while they were on watch, uh, they would have been put to death by Pilate. That would have been the end of that. By this afternoon, it had been discovered that when Jesus died and that last earthquake happened, tombs had been opened up, and at his resurrection, when that was declared, many people around the city began to see people walking around that they recognized, proclaiming what they had seen happen also. Pretty cool how Jesus decided to do that. I mean, he didn't resurrect them first and then open the grave. Been a little miserable, but do with that what you like. And so shall it be with us. This is the reason that we can come with confidence boldly before the throne. We have been declared sons and daughters of God. This is the reason that we can pray for the sick and they can be healed. This is the reason we can pray for the demonized and they can be set free. This is the reason we can ask God to intervene in our situation, whether it be home life or work, and the invisible will happen before the visible happens. Every time we pray, things change. Every prayer we utter, things change. Every thought we think that is generated by the living God causes nothing to be the same. This is what Jesus did for us. Remember. He gave us a promise of power, remember. He gave us authority, influence, and eternal life, remember. In John 14, Jesus promised us that we would do greater things than he did. We shouldn't be satisfied with the status quo when he's offered us more. 
mean, I'd be pretty good just to see the things happen that Jesus did, but he's promised us more. So as we gather today for communion, I ask you, come to the table and ask him today, what is the more that he wants to release in you today as we remember? Heavenly Father, as we bow our hearts and we prepare ourselves for the communion that you have called us to, help us to remember all that you've called us to and that you have promised more. That even as we take communion today, that if there, is, if there are physical healings that need to take place, release that healing today. If there are emotional healings that need to take place, release that healing today. If there is bondage that needs to be broken and captives set free, let it be done today as we remember what you've done. In your name, Lord Jesus, we come to the table. Amen. We practice open communion here, as all, uh, most of you know. So if you would just gather around the table and take communion together. Anybody that, if the, at the conclusion, if you feel like there's ministry prayer that you need, please come forward and there'll be, here, there'll be those here that will pray with you. Otherwise, you're free to go.